0: Opinions expressed in this episode are personal. They do not necessarily reflect the views of this streaming platform. Welcome to another edition of Let's Be Diverse. I'm your host, Andrew Stout. This episode is dedicated to all my loved ones who supported me through this journey. Many of us have heard the term organizational development, or as some say, OD. However, Many of us don't know what it is. On today's episode, we'll be discussing organizational development and how it is important to an organization. My guest today is someone who is one of the most knowledgeable people that I know. Her name is Melanie Reed. Now, Melanie is a passion leader and an educator whose vision is to transform the HR industry one HR professional at a time. She has worked alongside and managed, taught, and mentored HR professionals for almost 20 years. She is the principal consultant of the Unicorn Group. She is an assistant teaching professor of human resources management in the School of Business and Economics at Thompson River University. And she is the host of her own podcast, The HR Mentor. She has also held leadership roles in recruitment, talent management, total rewards, learning, and development. I told her when she agreed to be a guest that I was absolutely thrilled to have her on. Welcome to the show, Melanie. I am super excited to have you on as a guest today.
1: Well, thank you, Andrew, for that lovely introduction. Um, I'm honored to be here and and very grateful that you asked me to come on. It's uh, It's a pleasure and it's great to see this podcast growing so quickly. You've done a great job. So excited to be here.
0: I appreciate that, Melanie. Thank you very much. And actually, coming from you, that means a lot. So I will take that as a huge compliment. <laughs> you should. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> How have you been? What's new? I'm great. It's uh, it's summertime for me, so I'm not teaching and uh, working on some projects and papers and having convocation at our university which is always a really special time of the year to see the students graduating and meet their families it's like one of the best parts of this job so yeah so i'm i'm in kind of a quieter time of my annual cycle so so life was good life was good so and then it gives you time to enjoy the weather at the same time it certainly does. Yeah, we're very lucky. I don't know if I would appreciate if my four months off started in November. So this is this is good.
0: <laughs> I would agree with you. I, I know personally that I would not appreciate uh, having it off in November either. That's not my favorite time of year. I'm not a cold weather guy. I'm more of a warm weather guy. So this is the time that I enjoy as well. Awesome. So I'm I'm glad to hear that things are going well. Before we begin the episode here, I always start things off with asking my guests a fun, thought-provoking question. Are you ready for yours, Melanie? I'm a little nervous, but I'm ready. (laughs) There's nothing to be nervous about at all. My question is, if they say that we learn from our mistakes, why are we always afraid
1: to make them? Oh, that's a really good question. Let me think about that. Well, I guess, I mean, I can think about it from my own perspective. I think there is, for many of us, a desire to do things the right way, that we we want to deliver on what's expected of us, and making mistakes might be a signal that we weren't able to do something the right way or the correct way. I think for a lot of people the way they were raised and the people they were raised by sometimes can have an impact on their ability to be vulnerable, to make or admit mistakes. Yeah, So, and I think there's a difference between knowing something and then actually doing it. So I know lots of things are bad for me, like staying up too late or enjoying a glass of wine or skipping my workout for the day. But we do them anyway, sometimes. so it's, uh, yeah, it can sometimes be challenging to take what we know is good for us or the right thing to do, and then actually doing it. Yeah, that would be a good question for a psychologist. Oh,
0: for sure. I thought that when you say workout, it's funny, sometimes we will be willing to skip the workout, but we may not necessarily want to skip the glass of wine. (laughs)
1: That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So as you said in your introduction, I've been working in the human resource management space for, well, it's, it's coming up on 25 years now. So it's been a minute. And I started off really in the recruitment area. And when I first graduated with my BBA, I had a hard time finding my first HR job. And and I like to share that with new graduates cuz I think a lot of graduating HR students struggle to get kind of that first opportunity in HR and my experience was no different. So when I started off, I was working in more of a career planning and career coaching role and I did that for about 3 years and and I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, but I was always on the lookout for my first HR job. So that came in the form of a recruiter role in a really high volume environment in a, a call center. So at the time in BC, there were a lot of call centers from the US setting up shop in Canada. Believe it or not, it was because of the dollar. Uh, we wouldn't know that today, but it was <laughs> it was more affordable to to have labor in Canada. So I spent a year doing that, and then because of that experience, it gave me an opportunity to move into an HR advisor role. And from there, I just kept taking different opportunities to learn different aspects of, of HR. I worked in compensation and benefits, managing that for a number of years. Um, I worked in the talent management space for a number of years. But a lot of the time I spent as an HR generalist in both union and non-union workplaces and my last corporate job was sort of my dream job. It was in workforce planning and development. So I was overseeing all of the workforce planning. I was overseeing recruitment and employee development. And uh, it, was a, it was a really interesting job and, and uh, very exciting to be involved in sort of developing some of those strategies for a, a large organization. But I left the corporate world in 2017 and decided to start my own consulting company. And that was going to be my full-time gig. I had already been teaching part-time at the university and never really thought that I would have a chance to teach full-time. I obtained my master's degree because I wanted to teach part-time and uh, had been doing so for a number of years. And then in 2018, the opportunity came up for me to teach full-time, so I've been doing that for the last five years, and um, I really love it. So my consulting has pretty much, I've backed away from that, and I started the podcast, The HR Mentor, and have been focused on supporting new HR graduates with their career path and and their career development as my new side gig. (laughs) (laughs) because you know there's having one full-time job is never enough for me so I I always have to have something else going on the side so yeah so I I've been teaching full-time at Thomas Rivers University here in Cantaloupe for the last five years and um, really really enjoy that it's it's probably the best job I've ever had it's really rewarding and yeah so that's where I am. I'm also a mom of two very busy teenagers, so that also keeps me out of trouble. And
0: Yes, I would imagine that two teenagers keep you pretty busy as well.
1: They do, yeah. Yes, I imagine, yes.
0: And I imagine that you were saying that you're a teacher. I imagine it's probably fulfilling to you to, to actually see um, your students not only finish, but to 16 and grow in the
1: industry. I imagine that's
0: fulfilling that's as well.
1: Extremely. Yeah, it's, you know, when they get their first job, or they get a promotion, and I see that on LinkedIn, it's kind of like, you know, seeing one of your kids be successful in a way. And I'm really focused on trying to build connections and relationships with students and um, staying in touch with them after they leave the university. And LinkedIn has been a, a really great opportunity to do that. But it's, it's nice to see them succeed, right? Especially when you see them in the very stressful days of, of university and trying to balance work and studies. And yeah, so it's nice to see them move on and, and do other things.
0: So yeah. For sure. So explain to us what
1: organizational development means to you. Sure. Yeah. I, I like your introduction where you said, you know, not a lot of people know what OD is. And and I I would agree um, it's also sort of an ambiguous kind of concept or, or area of human resource management or, or, you know, a subset of organizational behavior in a sense. But organizational development is really a set of processes and and interventions that organizations might use to help improve the effectiveness and the performance of the organization. So it's not any single Thing or any single process, but it's a set of processes and, and actions that the organization might take to be better at whatever it is that they do. It's really based on this idea that organizations are what we call open systems, meaning that they're they're impacted by the external environment as much as they are the internal environment. So organizations don't operate in vacuums. They're impacted by everything that's going on around them. So in order to improve them, what we're usually talking about when we talk about organizational development is we're talking about ways that we can change the structure, the culture, the systems, our processes, maybe our people, in order to facilitate an improvement to the organization and and why do we want to improve we want to improve so that we can better adapt to what's happening in the external environment and really the importance of that is that if we don't the organization or the business is not going to survive right so we always have to be adapting to what's going on on the outside and od approaches really help us do that
0: do you find that organizations look to organizational development when things are, like you mentioned, when there's a changing structure, do you find that they're also looking to change it if there's not a structure, but they just, like, there's not anything going wrong, but they just feel like there's a change needed?
1: Uh, like, sort of, you're asking about, you know, maybe anticipating a need to change. Right. Yeah, I think they do. I mean, I think organizations are always changing right so when i teach organizational development we're really focused on organizational change and organizations are always in motion they're right they're they're part of a system that there's always something that is that is in flux maybe it's um you know maybe there's changes in the amount of sales that are happening maybe there's changes in leadership you know, somebody quitting an organization in an influential role, well, that sparks a change in the organization. But do I think that a lot of organizations say, you know, we have to use organizational development techniques in order to address this? I don't think that happens as much, you know, some large organizations will have organizational development professionals, and a lot of them are really focused on organizational learning, teamwork, leadership development, employee engagement, those sorts of things. But I don't know that a lot of even HR professionals would categorize that as organizational development. It can be a little bit ambiguous, but you know, some of the HR activities that you would probably associate or that you could associate with organizational development would be things like if you want to change your culture. Where you want to engage in process improvement, leadership development. Those are all sort of OD functions or interventions that an organization might be involved in.
0: Because I could see, especially in the last couple of years, or especially during the pandemic, I could see a lot of organizational change in mentioned culture. I could see a lot of the culture sure. very changing because people are, they were so used to staying home or working from home, and now these businesses want them back. And they don't want to go back. They want to continue to work from home because they enjoyed taking their kid to school or picking them up after school or being there for, you know, for supper. So I can imagine
1: that there was some changes there. Oh, I mean, COVID was, yeah, it was the, I don't even know what the word is. It was like the ultimate change that was forced upon organizations and people. And and I think, you know, looking back, at least in my lifetime, there's never been a change like that, that really affected every organization, right? Regardless, and we're still feeling the effects of that, right? Because again, if you think about the open system, and you look at supply chain, there's still supply chain issues that were brought on because of COVID. I'll give you a really simple example. I used to use a very specific contact lens solution, and it worked the best for me and for my contacts. And there was some supply chain issue about, I want to say, like probably a year ago, and now you can't find it anywhere. And nobody makes the same product. And so that is a significant change brought on by the pandemic that's affecting a lot of retailers because they don't have it on their shelves anymore. And the company was the only supplier of it. And so now there's all these consumers that are having to change, right? In a, in a very sort of, I mean, it's impacted me a lot, <laughs> but. A simple example, but it, but it affects a lot of organizations, right? And we also see it with the labor market. You know, the pandemic didn't cause the labor market issues. It just sort of magnified what was already happening. And we're going to be in that for a very long time, this labor shortage. So people are having to adapt and employers are having to adapt how they recruit people and how they retain people because there aren't as many people looking for jobs. Right. Right. And people have adapted too. Like, you know, candidates, they've adapted to because
0: of what they like I said earlier, what they've enjoyed of taking their kids to school or picking them up after school or being home for supper. So now they've adapted to that. So when they're going and looking for work, they're asking companies like, what's your policy on on this? Do you believe in employee well-being and do you believe in family oriented employees and and what are your values? So they're asking all these questions to companies. So I feel like the companies are almost the ones that are being interviewed by the employee.
1: 100%. Yeah. And I I think a really good example you just used was, you know, asking companies if they have a work-from-home policy and if they haven't adopted that change into their organization, and they don't have a policy, they're probably going to have a hard time recruiting people. An organizational development sort of lens on that would say, well, you have to change your culture around work from home. There's probably some leadership development that's required. Because in my experience, one of the biggest stumbling blocks about remote work, uh, we used to call it telecommuting back in the back in the day when when I remember first drafting a policy for an organization and the big stumbling block was managers didn't know how to manage people remotely and they didn't trust them so you know there's leadership development that has to happen and then there's there's processes and things that have to be adapted in order to to adapt to that sort of external change that's happening sure for sure
0: I learned from somewhere Somebody intelligent told me that organizational change is an evolution of forming, storming, norming, and performing.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it takes a group or a team to make it happen. Like, it has to involve everybody. It's sort of a, it's an ongoing endeavor. Sometimes it's hard to pinpoint the start and the end of organizational change. When
0: organizations are considering organizational change, is it necessary or recommended to adapt a formal change processes or hire change engagement consultants to embrace the change instead of fighting?
1: Well, I don't think it's necessary to hire a change management consultant if you want to change something in your organization. There's kind of two schools of thought on this. Part of the whole prevailing thinking around OD, or at least historically, is that this is about making the workplace more democratic and less top-down, right? So we went from kind of, you know, Taylorism and scientific management and everything being regimented and very top-down and the division of labor, that sort of thing. And the early kind of OD movement was all about recognizing that if we paid attention to people and what they needed, that the organization would perform better, there would be better results. When we bring in change management consultants, and we have sort of a change management approach to organizational development and change, sometimes what happens is it's more about project management and involves employees less in the process. And that can be a detriment to the organization. Yes, it can get it done faster. But if you don't engage your people in the process, what happens when the consultant leaves? And they're also if you're not engaging people in the change, engaging them in leading the change in implementing the change. You're going to probably face more resistance to it, especially if it affects people directly. So, there's, I mean, there's a number of of organizational change models out there that really talk about the fact that you have to get people motivated to change. You have to kind of create this sense of urgency around change. And then involving people in the process is quite important and recognizing how people might react. To whatever the change is. And then at the end of implementing the change, the only way for change to stick is to embed it in your culture. So if you leave it to an external party to come and do all of the work, you may not have people engaged in the process. And therefore, they might not, they might go back to their old way of doing things if they're not part of that change process. Facing resistance can be a challenge. I think if you have a really good change consultant, they're going to know that and they're going to know when they need to be involved and how much and when they should be backing out. And they'll also know how to engage people in the process, which is critically important, I think, to the whole thing. Yeah. So I think there's no single right answer. I think change management consultants and project management works in a lot of organizations. But I do believe that without engaging employees throughout the process, without consulting them, without making sure that there's a cultural change at the end, the change won't be successful. And my favorite example of this is always like a technological change because I've been through you know, implementations of HRIS software. And if people don't feel like there's a need to change a piece of software, they're going to be really resistant towards it. And even if you engage them in implementing it, you get their input on how the fields are are arranged, etc. If you don't find a way to embed that new software in the culture in terms of you get rid of the legacy system, you make sure that people are involved with the training, that people are consulted on how it should be rolled out, etc., then it's often a more difficult change or the change can fail. So just having a consultant come in and tell you what to do without engaging your people is not usually a a good way to go about it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And I think when you're adopting something or you're doing an organizational change, I agree. with so you want to engage the employees. But I do feel that if you're going to get them engaged and they agree with it and they're all 100% with the change and let's say it's a positive change and nothing happens within six months, then you're going to probably lose them because they're going to wonder, well, what's going on? The president, didn't he say that there was going to be some change or some changes? And we love them. What's happening? Where are they at? Like, I haven't seen or heard anything. So, I think the communication part is got to
1: be there as well. 100%. Actually, in my org development and change class, we, we do a whole unit on communication. And one of the things I tell them over and over again is that change is communication. Like, if you're not communicating all the way through, you can't really expect anything to change or for people to get involved. Like, it's a, it's a really critical part of it being successful. Yeah, I agree completely.
0: Yeah. And I do feel that people, they don't necessarily dislike change, but they don't like to be changed.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think even positive changes, people fear. And I remember developing, well, I've I've still delivered it a number of times, a leading change workshop. And one of the first things that I do with the participants, these are like managers in in organizations, is I get them to think about some recent changes they've gone through and then sort of categorize their emotions around them. So, and what, what we find is that even positive changes can elicit feelings of fear. And what often makes people fearful is they don't know how the change is going to affect them directly. So when I talk to leaders, I always say that there's few things you need to make sure of before you start communicating your change. You need to be clear on what's changing. You need to be clear on who's affected by the change. And you also need to be really clear on how they're affected. Because if people know what's changing and how they're affected by the change, then it tends to alleviate some of the fear. But often the fear comes from not knowing what to expect, right? Even a positive change.
0: Where does organizational development fit with everything that professionals do?
1: Oh, well, I think it is embedded in any change that happens in the organization. And sometimes we just don't call it that. Like I said at the beginning, you know, some of the activities in HR that I think are associated with OD or are tactics you might use are things related to organizational learning and improving your teamwork, cultural interventions or transformations, changing systems or processes. You know, there's process improvement, right? Have you ever been through a process improvement activity in your organization where you look at, here's the process now, we think it has too many steps, it's too convoluted, people don't understand it, we're going to map out a new process. That's organizational development. You're implementing a change and you're trying to improve the organization. So I think it's really deeply embedded in HR and it should be a part of your HR strategy. Do
0: you think that organizations, when they are looking for a development fit, do you think that they struggle with it sometimes or is it something that's thought out? What do you mean by development fit? So like when they are they're thinking, like you said, organization development. You know, you asked, okay, have I ever been part of a process where somebody sits down? You know, okay, this is what we're going to be doing. This process was what we had before, but this is what we're going to be doing now, and this is what we think is going to be best. So, so maybe I'll rephrase it differently. Do you think that, is it something that they just kind of think, okay, we need to make a change in this? Or is it something that's thought out over time and saying, okay, maybe we need to look at this further and kind of develop a plan for it?
1: Oh, I think it completely depends on the organization. I I think some organizations have the knowledge and, and also have the people power to plan these things out, right? So like an OD professional would be looking at the strategy of the organization, what they anticipate having to respond to in the external environment or even in the internal environment. And they would be proactively looking at ways to improve the organization or to be prepared to respond to things. So for example, if you were developing a succession plan for a CEO that you knew was retiring in three years, and you had an OD professional, I would think they would be involved in the planning of, you know, how the organization might change what the impacts might be to culture. You know, let's say you had, I remember an example from my own experience, we had a CEO at one time, in an organization that was doing really well financially and it was a very positive time and and there was lots of money to spend and we had all these cool employee engagement activities and events and stuff and when the CEO left the board replaced them with the chief financial officer so when you're replacing your your fun CEO with the head of the money that sends a very different tone to the organization. And there was a cultural shift. So it wasn't one of spending, right? So the external environment shifted, and the organization had to respond to that with different leadership. But that was a change in culture. And, and it was an adjustment for everybody, right? Because, you know, things things shifted. And so those are the kind of things that organizational development professionals would be involved with. And, and quite often, that falls to the Director, the VP of HR, and I imagine that organizational shift. There was
0: probably some people that was probably not very happy because the culture was good
1: when the other guy was there, but then it kind of shifted, so they were probably not happy as well. Well, and I'm sure there were lots of people that weren't very happy about it, right? And it because it takes it takes time to adjust, so. If you have an OD professional and you know that that's coming and, and you don't always know these things are coming. Sometimes CEO replacements happen overnight, right? Then you would be working with organizational leaders on how to f- support that culture change within the organization. And again, it comes back to what I said about communication, right? Is so here's what's changing. Here's why we have to change right here's the why in it that's super important here's who's affected and who here's how they're affected so if if we're switching up CEOs and we're going to you know processes or practices that show more fiscal restraint then it's really important to explain to your people why you have to do that right and why it's the new vision for the next year or two. And then people can get more on board when they have information. But if you just change CEOs, people are going to wonder if you don't kind of have some interventions that help them understand why you're changing. Right. What do you think the future of organizational development is going to look like? Well, that's a really good question. It's a bit of a tough question because You know, I think OD was really popular as sort of an idea, you know, in the, well, probably when it first sort of came to be in the 60s, 70s, I think was some of the earliest work. And then it's sort of taken this peeling back a bit and having more of the kind of change management practices rolled into it with, you know, talking about things like process improvement and trying to optimize efficiency and that, those sorts of things. And when I look at what's happening out there in the world with the labor market, I think on one hand, I feel like we're going to move more towards sort of process improvement, optimization of technology, simply because we don't have enough physical people to do what we used to do, right? So I think that's, kind of one thing that we all need to be mindful of is how organizations are really going to turn to technology to help address the labor shortage. On the other side, what I see is a bit of a reckoning when it comes to how people are managed. And you made a really good point, Andrew, that uh, a certain number of people didn't want to go back to the office, and they still don't want to go back to the office ever. (laughs) And they probably worked in really crappy offices or they were really far away from home. Or, you know, there's lots of reasons why people don't want to go back to the office. But right. in order to retain people, organizations are going to have to, they're going to have to listen more and take more of a caring approach towards their employees. And that is a very difficult shift for a lot of organizations. So making that kind of shift from the human resource perspective, meaning that people are just a resource that has to be managed, which is the definition of human resource management in every HR textbook, right? They're going to have to make a shift from that kind of robotic way of looking at people and look at people more holistically as people with lives outside of work, with mental health concerns, with Concerns about equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging in the workplace with, you know, sandwich generation pressures of raising children and also caring for aging parents. There's all of these things that, you know, this idea when I first started in HR that people leave their personal lives at the door and when they get into the organization, well, they should just be fine. And I can remember a number of examples from my own career where I felt like I had to do that. And organizations can't really expect that of people anymore. And people expect more from organizations. And so I feel like in some organizations, they're going to embrace that. They're going to engage their people in dialogue around what that looks like. And and they're going to kind of redefine what managing people looks like and there are other organizations that i think are really going to go the other way look at what happened when elon musk took over twitter he fired a bunch of people he told everyone to get their butt back to the office and created all of these sort of more you know got rid of a lot of the edi policies and the you know the safety on twitter that people had come to expect in terms of what you couldn't couldn't say about people Right? So that's shifting. So it's going to be interesting. I I don't really know what the future holds for, say, an OD role in an organization. I I think if your organization has an OD role, they're already ahead of the curve. (laughs) And they're leaning more towards the embracing employee differentiation and care. But if they don't, I think it's going to be more process improvement, more about trying to be as efficient as possible, and maximizing profit.
0: Yeah, I have a someone that I don't want on my connections, she was working for a company, and she was burnt out to the max. She was not doing great. She had two managers and she went to see the first manager, told him what was going on. I'm not doing good. I'm not feeling great. I'm not myself. And they basically told her to shake it off and get back to work. And then she went to see the second manager and he actually sat down with her and said, oh my God, tell me what's going on. And she told him, and he said to her, What do you need from me? Do you need me to listen? Do you need a shoulder to cry on? Do you need some advice? What? Tell me exactly what it is that you need. And I know we're talking about organizational change today, but I do feel that within the organizational, I think organizations need to change. And I think leaders need to go to that direction of the second manager. And if one of the first manager, that manager, if he can adapt to it, then there's a problem. He needs to change his aspect and his way of thinking to be this, the way of the second.
1: Yeah. And an OD lens would say, you know, why do we have these two different perspectives from the same managers so they're not they're not aligned in the organization to the same value system right and so maybe the organization doesn't have clear values for managers to be aligned to maybe they don't have good processes around employee well-being and mental health maybe they don't right and so if the leader of the organization wanted to do something about that then you know OD interventions would be really helpful. Right. And that's that's the kind of symptom that an an HR professional or an HR advisor, you know, might bring to their HR leadership and say, we have a problem here. We have managers with very different value bases and and it's affecting our employees. Yeah, for sure. It is. Yeah, it would affect them for
0: sure. And, you know, when you're looking at the seeing the numbers of people not sticking around, well, yeah. then yeah, I think then, you know, it's not okay, the employee just didn't understand or just wasn't a good fit or what have you. But when there's like five or six or seven people from the same area under the same management, then now what do we need to look at? Because there's something not
1: right for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a symptom of something more going on for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, if you could use one word to
1: describe yourself, Melanie, what word would that be? One word. I would probably say that I am a multi-passionate person. So I don't even know if it's an official word, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm passionate, but I'm passionate about a lot of different things. And I it's been both a blessing and a curse in my life because right. I... I say yes to a lot of things because I'm interested in a lot of things, but then that can often be the road to overloading myself with too much. So, but I have a lot of interests and, and uh, a lot of things, you know, that I want to try and do and see in my lifetime. So,
0: yeah. So, when I thought of this question today, I kind of came up with a word that I thought for you. Oh, okay. I, th- I, I do believe that multi passionate is fantastic for you. But the word that I came up for you today was selfless. And the reason why I think of you as a selfless person is because just like you said, you're always going above and beyond. We've spoken a few times now, and I think you're one of the most humble people that I have met. You're always willing to listen to others. And I also find that you have the pleasure in helping others. That's what he just said before as well. So for me... Your word would be selfless.
1: Aw, thank you. That's really, really sweet of you, Andrew. I appreciate that. Yeah, You're thank very you.
0: Welcome, very welcome. Wait, sometimes I need your word, I shouldn't say sometimes. My word, I yeah, let's do it. I have been. I would say I've been told that I was genuine. I would say I've I've done this with people past podcasts, and genuine has come up a couple of times. So I would,
1: I would say genuine. I agree. Yeah. You do come across very genuine. Nice. I appreciate that. So, yeah, that's any, great. Any final
0: thoughts from you today? No.
1: I think just, you know, for any HR professionals that are listening, I think if there's, you know, one thing that you can do to help your organization be successful is really to to recognize, recognize that change is always going to be happening the external environment where we seem to be in this place where big things keep happening to communities from climate change to you know the pandemic and i think it's really important that you've always got your eye on what's going on outside the organization that could affect it and i think that's you know a, a really great thing that you can do for your organization is to be to be helping respond to those things so you know, that whole communication piece I think is also so important that I always say you can't over-communicate with people <laughs> in organizations. Like there, there seems to be a, you know, we worry about communicating too much and, and there's better and worse ways to communicate with people. But I think it's really important to do that and to hone in on your communication skills so that you can do it effectively. So yeah, that's really important. And the only other thing I'll say is just, Thank you so much for inviting me to come on and have this conversation. It was fun, and and uh, I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I appreciate you, and I want to take the time to thank you for joining me today. So I will say to you that I am inspired by your compassion, your commitment to help others. So I wanted to thank you for being that uplifting voice, not just for myself, but for Everybody else, I'm sure there's some listeners as well that feel the same
1: way about you as well. Thank you. And likewise, you know, you're doing a really good thing here with the podcast and, you know, helping educate people and bringing on interesting guests. I think it's really great. appreciate that. So on behalf of
0: myself and my guest, Melanie, I would like to take the time to thank you all for joining us today. And until next time, be safe. And remember that if we all work together... We can accomplish anything. You have been listening to Let's Be Diverse with Andrew Stout. To stay up to date with future content, hit subscribe.